You may know the statistic that nine out of 10 startups fail. The one startup that succeeds can have an enormous impact on the economy. My goal with this book is to change that equation even slightly. If I can make it so that two out of 10 startups succeed, there's some real potential for some new exciting startups to emerge and change the world. Hi, welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in tech, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we talk about some of the biggest and most interesting stories in the news. This week, Windows 11, the latest Seattle tech IPO, and startup lessons from the trenches, plus Later on, a listener defends the Blue Yeti mic in response to our recent behind-the-scenes show. We're pleased to be joined this week by our guest, Sharish Nadkarni, a serial entrepreneur based in Seattle who founded mobile wireless email pioneer Timon Systems, acquired by BlackBerry in 2002, and co-founded language learning site LiveMocha, which was acquired by Rosetta Stone in 2013. Most recently, he's the author of the new book, from Startup to Exit, an insider's guide to launching and scaling your tech business. Sharish, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. John and I were talking before we started recording. I wish I had your book when we were starting GeekWire. Not everything is specifically relevant to what we ended up doing, but there are so many great nuggets in the book, and it's so well-structured. It literally is a guide to getting a company off the ground. So we're going to dive into some of those details later on. Great. That's great. I'm glad it was useful. One of the concepts that you talk about in the book, Sharish, is the importance of watching new platforms for startup ideas. But I wanted to start this week with a news item that actually relates to an old established platform that's from your work history. In the news this week, Microsoft announced that it will be releasing Windows 11 on October 5th. And of course, this is part of an overall renaissance at Microsoft under Satya Nadella. And it's also one of the twists that has come with the pandemic. Microsoft seems to be paying attention to Windows again. Sharish, you started your career at Microsoft. I'd be curious just to get your thoughts on what you've been seeing overall at Microsoft these days and, and your thoughts on where the company is headed. You bet. I mean, um, when I was at Microsoft, uh, one of the groups I worked on was actually Windows Development Tools. And in those days, this was uh, in the 90s, uh, the Windows platform was super important for Microsoft. And uh, we were working on tools like Visual C++ and Visual Basic to make it really easy to build Windows applications. But times have changed uh, you know, with the internet platform shift and then with mobile and now with cloud. Nobody's unfortunately developing uh, software for or new uh, applications for Windows 11. Uh, certainly, you have you know uh, Zoom and other tools that you have to build specifically for Windows. But when it comes to developing new applications, the developers out there are developing you know either mobile applications or web-based applications in the cloud. So unfortunately, while Windows 11 might provide some you know nice enhancements you know to the user interface. Uh, I'm just as happy uh, with Windows 10. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll upgrade, but I'm not sure I'll really notice any difference. I actually am excited about Windows 11 coming out. It's got a lot of interesting user interface improvements. Certainly, it's not a massive upgrade like Windows 95 was back in the day, but I'm looking forward to it when it comes out on October 5th. 
the last big upgrade you cite from Microsoft was Windows 95. <laughs> you know, that was the last momentous thing they did on the operating system level. That's actually not true. Windows XP, Windows 2000, okay. and, and let's forget about Windows Vista. Yeah. The one disappointment for me is that they're delaying or at least not releasing at launch the rollout of Android apps for Windows, which was a, a big new thing that everybody's expecting. This is actually an interesting partnership between Microsoft and Amazon to bring Android apps to Windows, and uh, that is not going to be available when they start rolling out Windows 11 on October 5th. So I'm a little bummed about that. But other than that, I'm, I'm ready to upgrade, man. Ready to upgrade. Sharish, what are the platforms that you're watching from a startup perspective these days, and where do you see the biggest opportunities for entrepreneurs in these platform shifts that you write about in the book? Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, one of the key ones, uh, I think of uh, AI and ML really as a new platform, right, that's enabling intelligent applications. So these days, when I talk to startups, you know, vast majority of them are using AI ML in some form or shape. And the key there is to really have access to proprietary data or combining proprietary and public data in some intelligent fashion. And if you can do that, then you can really uh, build a strong competitive moat uh, and make make your AI ML algorithms you know, even better uh, than anybody else out there. So that's really one of the key platforms I'm watching. And then I'm watching to some extent AR, VR. Uh, I think it's still a little early, but it'll probably take another you know, three, four years before you know, that becomes a, a, a mainstream platform. So Sharice, just to follow up on that, you talked about building that moat around your startup. Mm -hmm. If you're in the AI ML space, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the data is often housed by very, very large incumbents. So how does a startup make inroads in those arenas and build a new platform or a moat around their business? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. It's uh, it's a chicken or the egg kind of uh, issue. Uh, the, the way that you know, what I've seen with startups, you know, there's a startup uh, up level, which uh, came out of the Go Vertical uh, workshop between Ty Seattle and Madonna Venture Labs and is now a funded company. Uh, they were trying to build a solution where they could predict, um, you know, uh, how engaged employees were and they needed access to data such as your Slack data, your calendaring data, your Jira data, et cetera, from corporations and uh, it took quite a bit of effort for them to, you know, get that going and get the initial data from companies because that's, you know, private data uh, that companies are reluctant to share. But, you know, through uh, Madrona's connections, through MBL's connections, they were able to get uh, initial data sets, uh, show that the model, build out the model, show that the model had value. And then based on that, once they got some initial data sources, then it became a lot easier for them to go to other companies and, and ask for uh, for data. So uh, it does require some persistence. Uh, it does take some time. Um, and if you have the right connections, then you're able to uh, get off the ground. And in that realm, I guess, as you think about startups, you also write in the book that, you know, it's difficult for startups to come in and take on these big incumbents. As an angel investor in startups, where do you see the best opportunities to disrupt specific industries today? And are you looking at specific areas that are ripe for disruption? Yeah, I think uh, sp specifically with the uh, AI ML, I think the best opportunities are in vertical 
industries uh, and uh, you know industries where there hasn't been much technology been that's been deployed in those in those markets so uh, and those are not markets that typically you know people think about so i look for opportunities where uh, aiml is being deployed in in very specific ways to um, automate things or to provide more intelligent um, applications in those vertical markets yeah, I think of a company like Zillow Group based here in Seattle, which combined public and proprietary data to to really take a, a chunk out of and disrupt the real estate industry, uh, the residential real estate industry, at least right now. Are there specific verticals that you think are ripe for disruption? Insurance uh, would be a good, uh, I'm certainly not an expert on insurance, but certainly IML could be applied in very interesting ways uh, in the insurance market to predict you know, certain events, et cetera. They've been using actuarial data for, you know, hundreds of years in that industry. But I think AIML could be uh, used to provide better predictions in terms of, you know, losses that you could be suffering, et cetera. So I think that could be certainly a market that would be ripe for disruption. Yeah, great. Well, I want to step back for just a second, Sharish, and ask just a broad question here. What was the motivation? I mean, you've been in the in the technology realm for a while. You've Build a number of startups now investing in startups and very involved with Thai Seattle, uh, which helps incubate and create new startups. What was the motivation for writing from startup to exit? Why did you do this? Uh, funny enough, um, you know, I have a uh, somewhat of an idealistic vision around that. You may know the statistic that uh, nine out of 10 startups fail, uh, but the one startup that succeeds uh, can have an enormous impact on the economy. And if you look at the uh, top 10 companies in the world by valuation, nine of them are technology companies like Google, Facebook, and others. So they have enormous impact on, the, uh, on our economy and creating jobs and new technologies, et cetera. My goal with this book is to change that equation even slightly. Uh, if I can make it so that two out of 10 startups succeed, there's some real potential for some new exciting startups to emerge and change the world and change our economy. So that's my hope is that uh, I can provide the, uh, the the wisdom that I've gained through my experience as well as, you know, talking to other, um, you know, entrepreneurs uh, and sharing that with the book so that people can avoid the mistakes and really succeed uh, with their venture. It's a very readable take on it. It's extremely clear and well-structured and it's the kind of book that you can use as a reference. I could see going back to it if a new situation comes up at the end, not to give away the end, but you talk about your three three key takeaways being making sure you get a, a good founding team with the right mix, the product market fit, making sure that what you're coming up with actually solves a, a real problem in the market, and then the go-to-market strategy. But I know that product market fit is very important, and it's something that folks get wrong at times. They have a neat idea, and it just doesn't really take off because it doesn't solve a real problem at scale. What are the key tools, techniques, approaches that you advise people to follow when they're trying to search for that fit between their product and the demand in the market? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm happy to also mentioned that uh, with my first startup, I didn't really do any kind of market research. I was convinced that a business class email, uh, web-based email would be uh, would be a great uh, addition to the market. And you had to pivot as a result. I had to pivot as a result, yeah. So it was a painful uh, lesson at that point. Uh, but the key thing that I 
uh, mentioned in, in the book is that certainly you should be doing um, customer interviews to begin with. And when you talk to customers, uh, don't even tell them what solution you have. Uh, start by asking them, what are the top three or four problems that they have, right? And see if the problem that you're addressing even makes it in the top three or four. Because it may be a problem, you know, it may very well be a problem that they're encountering. But if it's not top of mind for them, then your sales cycles are going to be incredibly long and it's going to be cumbersome for you to really go out there and convince your customers. So my first kind of a piece of advice is really understand what are the top three or four problems. And if your problem is not one of them, then maybe you need to pivot right there uh, and say, hey, uh, tell me more about those top three or four problems and, uh, uh, and learn from that and see if you want to pivot your, your solution. And then after that, one of the key, other key strategies that I describe in the book is to actually test your value proposition on the web or on, on, or on mobile. Um, so actually create a you know, website, a mobile website, and test different value propositions through Google Ads or Facebook Ads, and even take the, the user all the way down to quote-unquote purchasing the product to see if they actually put down a credit card. Uh, and that will really allow you to test different value propositions, to test different landing pages, uh, and test what features really resonate uh, with the end user. So, so those are some of the key strategies that I mentioned in the book that you need to uh, try to, uh, uh, to achieve product market fit. Another big change that we've seen is the exit process, how companies are going public, being acquired. Things are really wild here over the past year, and that's one of the topics of your book, the exit process. So, Sharish, we're going to talk about that. When we come back, we'll be right back. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. And our guest this week is Sharish Nadkarni. He is the author of From Startup to Exit, An Insider's Guide to Launching and Scaling Your Tech Business. He's a Seattle technology veteran, started at Microsoft and has founded multiple companies since leaving the tech giant. Sharish, just this past week, we saw a good example, Remitly, which is a longtime money remittance startup here in the Seattle region, filed its paperwork to go public. But overall, we've just seen this increase in companies that are going public that may not have been going public in the past, in part because of this SPAC trend, the special purpose acquisition companies, which you write about in your book. With these new opportunities to go public, are you seeing a shift in focus at all? Is there a risk that folks might focus more on the exit now that it's more readily available through the public markets? And maybe not focus as much on building something of long-term value? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, in the early stages, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, what I recommend to uh, folks is, uh, you know, focus on your vision, focus on the long-term, focus on building your business. Don't worry about how you're going to get an exit. You know, if you do really well, then the exit opportunities will present themselves to you. 
but if you look at later stage companies, uh, one of the concerns I have at this point uh, with the whole SPAC phenomena is that you have companies that are not yet ready to go IPO, going IPO through that process. You know, a, a good example of that is uh, Rover, you know, which, uh, uh, you know, was uh, formed in, in Seattle, you know, through a startup weekend. You know, certainly a great company providing an incredible service to dog owners like myself. But, you know, they uh, suffered tremendously during the uh, pandemic. And they're still suffering. They've had significant losses. And it's not clear that the business is going to entirely recover because of remote work and so forth. So people are going to be you know, home longer. And so they will not need dog sitters as much as they would in the past. Uh, and they filed for, you know, to go public through a SPAC. They didn't raise as much money as they had originally filed. So that indicates that some number of investors were nervous about the opportunity. And it's to be seen, you know, how well they meet their projections in the future. If the projections take a hit and they don't really meet their earnings forecast, then, you know, they'll be uh, in nowhere land for a long time. So so I think there is a, a real risk with some of these packs where companies are not really ready to go public. Uh, but because of all the, the hoopla uh, around this strategy that you're still seeing companies go public through that method. Sharish, you lived through the dot-com boom and bust era. Where are we on the spectrum compared to that period of the late 90s and early 2000s, given the deal volume we're seeing, given the venture capital volume? Certainly, the deal volume and the venture capital volume is, is very, very significant uh, you know, in, in, the, in the last two or three years. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, as you well know, in the dot-com uh, boom days, uh, there were a lot of companies who didn't really have a business model uh, and were going out there getting high valuations. And, and then the whole thing crashed you know, after that. I, I don't think the same thing is going to happen quite uh, with our boom. Uh, I am concerned about SPACs, as we discussed. Uh, I think many of them will risk uh, you know, uh, going below IPO price. But otherwise, you know, the companies uh, that are going IPO the traditional way uh, we'll continue to do well. Well, a company that just did go public the traditional way in late July is a company I'm I'm sure you've been following, given your history, Sharish, Duolingo, which yes. was a language learning service. I bring this up because you created a company by the name of Live Mocha, yes. uh, which took on Rosetta Stone and the CD-ROM business. And you were early on moving language learning to an online experience. Duolingo has come into the market and really seems to have cracked the code there. They've got over a $5 billion market value growing rapidly. I'm curious, given your insights into that specific market and what you've written in the book about disruptors, what did Duolingo get right that maybe disrupted what LiveMoco did to Rosetta Stone, kind of this progression of continuous disruption? Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, I've watched that with uh, great uh, interest. Because, you know, uh, it could have been Live Mocha that could have gone IPO earlier this year. You know, when we came out in 2007, we took the market by storm. We grew very rapidly to over 15 million members around the world. But uh, we hit the financial crisis at that point, And immediately, everything became about monetization. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, this was a time when... First of all, we had uh, a lot of our users, about 90% of our users were outside the U.S. 
And at that time, most of them did have credit cards. So when we did offer online you know, language learning courses for a fee, our adoption rate was uh, pretty low. And so it became really, really challenging for us to raise venture capital funding. As a result, we had to sell to uh, Rosetta Stone. But if we had somehow managed to uh, keep on raising money, uh, the reason that Duolingo finally succeeded, they came out in, I think, 2011. Yeah, that's correct. Much later than we did. Uh, the reason Duolingo succeeded was because they focused on mobile. And by, you know, and even they did not monetize for a long time until about 2015 or 16, when the app stores on iPhone and Android were prevalent throughout the world and people already had access to credit cards. And so with Duolingo, you know, they were able to get conversions about 3% paying for their courses and create a significant business as a result. So it was a matter of timing for us. If we had access to venture capital money, it would have been very difficult for them to overcome us, the lead that we had in terms of users. And we would have grown to, you know, 300 million users or whatever number that Duolingo had. So it's, it's with great interest that I watch, uh, you know, how Duolingo succeed and I wish them well. Yeah, I think it just speaks to timing and luck is a lot of part of this in the entrepreneurial process, which, you know, you can't really, can't really factor that in, but you just got to get out there and, and play with the hand you're dealt with. Speaking to that, you touched on something here in 2007. And, you know, obviously, you'd probably have rather started in 2011 because you're riding out of a recession versus going into one. And I'm curious, from your vantage point, what are the strategies, and this is really relevant related to what a lot of entrepreneurs have had to go through over the past 18 months with COVID, what are your strategies and what have you been telling entrepreneurs over the past 18 months about managing through a crisis? And you either see that with an economic downturn, you see that in our case here with a pandemic. Mm -hmm. what, what has been top of mind as you talk to entrepreneurs and give them advice to get through periods of stress? Yeah, um, certainly. I, in fact, I wrote a blog article when the pandemic happened because uh, I've, I've gone through that, uh, you know, in two different occasions, once with the dot-com bust and then later with the, uh, you know, financial, you know, crisis. And so uh, managing your, your cash flow burn is super important. Uh, you want to extend your runway uh, significantly. You will probably need to cut back on your, your headcount. You need to renegotiate contracts. That's something I did. You know, I had a, a big real estate contract for my space, which I had to renegotiate. Uh, and sometimes people make the mistake of cutting back a little and then finding out that they have to cut back again and again. And what I recommend is to take a deep breath and, and cut back only once because otherwise it can be really demoralizing you know, for your team. And, and then see if you can uh, get your venture capital firms that are backing you to really uh, extend your runway or take out a loan that can help you extend your runway. Uh, fortunately, with this current pandemic, while the venture capital market froze for you know, three to four months, things have come back with a bang. And you know, many of the companies I've invested in, for example, have been able to uh, raise a significant amount of money. Uh, so things are back very much to uh, normal or better than normal. Uh, if you have a great idea, then I think you have uh, great prospects for raising money. 
Well, that is the surprising thing, I think, with the pandemic and, and the crisis around COVID is that in the business world, the companies that are disrupting industries and are in many cases, you mentioned Zoom, uh, in many cases, the com- these companies are, are just cashing in on massive opportunity. Yeah. And then there's another half of the bucket that's just sinking and struggling. So how do you think this is going to play out long term for maybe additional incumbents or additional old fashioned companies as they play against startups that might be riding a wave here? No, I think this is a good time. Uh, as we have seen, most uh, technology companies um, are doing really well because uh, corporations are looking to uh, cut costs uh, further. Um, so uh, a company like UiPath, which, as you know, went IPO uh, recently, I mean, they're doing incredibly well, you know, and uh, the reason they're doing well is because a lot of companies want to save cost and, and they want to apply AI ML to automate a large number of their um, tasks that are being you know, done by human beings or, or, or assisting them to be more um, effective and efficient in how they do their uh, day-to-day work. So I think this is the best time, I think, for a long time, even with the, with the pandemic. And I'm hoping that uh, with you know, the third booster shot, et cetera, that things will go back to uh, uh, normal uh, fairly soon. Yeah, but for some of these startups, they probably don't want it to go back to normal. I mean, <laughs> it, it's actually in their in their court and their advantage to have things disrupted. I mean, that's where startups like to play. So yes, more yeah. disruption is good for your business, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it creates more and more opportunity that, uh, you know, there's whole now category of applications being created for remote work. Uh, because you know remote work has suddenly become a major trend that you can take advantage of. So I think uh, we'll see a lot of new companies in that space uh, to enable you know people to collaborate and communicate uh, more effectively remotely. Online commerce has taken off very significantly. So you know you'll see more and more direct-to-consumer brands uh, being really successful. So you know the pandemic has really brought about a, a shift in the way that we work, the way that we shop. Etc. that you know has created new opportunities for companies. I'm really curious about this from a geographic standpoint as well. You mentioned Duolingo earlier, and the interesting thing about Duolingo is they're out of Pittsburgh. Uh, we got a chance to talk with them when we spent some time in Pittsburgh as a team at GeekWire. And of course, Sharish, you are coming out of the Seattle area, and I know at times in your book you talk about working with entrepreneurs and investors out of Silicon Valley especially as you look at the work from home trends that we're looking at in the pandemic, how much does geography matter to startups anymore? Yeah, that's, uh, I, I was just talking to uh, Jay Barto, uh, who you may know, for, uh, was CTO at Madrona Venture Labs, and he's uh, joined a company called Zightworks uh, as CEO. And I was asking him about how they're working uh, as a team. And he says that they only meet uh, once a week, uh, as a team, uh, but the rest of the time it's all remote. And you know what's happening is that people are have gotten used to a certain lifestyle. Uh, in you know, in terms of remote work, you know now they now get time to spend time with their kids, or they get time to work out, or you know whatever hobby that they have, and they they're reluctant to um, to uh, change that lifestyle. So that has changed. 
remarkably. And then I've, you know, I have uh, my co-founder, my former co-founder is now um, engineering uh, lead for Square in Seattle. And he was talking about how he's totally free to hire people from anywhere in the country or even outside outside the country. So really, we have seen a dramatic change in how work is happening, how recruiting is happening, and how talent is uh, is created and accessed. Sharish, I think there's a hope in some of these places like a Pittsburgh or Columbus, Ohio, or Indianapolis, Indiana, that the venture capital model will shift along with that as talent maybe goes to different places. Are you starting to see that, that angel investors or venture capitalists are maybe more interested in, in backing a, a team out of different geographies than along the West Coast or East Coast? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I uh, joined the, the Seattle Angel Conference uh, this year. And, you know, originally a lot of their companies were, you know, based out of Seattle. But as I review the companies that they have uh, in their, um, who have applied for the Seattle Angel Conference, a vast majority of them are outside, you know, Seattle. And uh, it looks like uh, the, the investors who are participating in the Seattle Angel Conference they're all very open to um, you know funding companies anywhere in the U.S. So I think you'll see you'll see a real change, a real shift in how investing is done, and a lot more certainly venture capital firms uh, willing to invest in companies outside of their immediate geography. With angel investment, it depends on the angel investor. Typically, in my case, for example, I would invest you know continue to invest locally because it allows me to interact more effectively with people you know locally but if i do in, see an interesting company outside the outside of seattle and i know of the founders then i'd be happy to invest in them sharish we're both enjoying your book and for those who have not read it yet what would you really want folks to walk away with as their key lesson or insight from what you've written in your book i would say three um, main takeaways uh, one is you know, uh, look for opportunities where there is um, some major either technology shift or some macro trend that uh, either surfaces an old problem or enables you to build a solution in a unique fashion that could not be done before. I think those are the best opportunities for an idea to succeed. So that's one. Second is to really invest time in achieving product market fit before you even go out there and market or spend money marketing your solution. So uh, we talked about some of the strategies for doing that uh, before in the interview. Uh, and then finally, um, invest the time to really understand how to build a go-to-market strategy. I've often seen really, really strong technologists uh, who focus on building a great solution, but don't don't really spend the time and energy to to really understand how to go acquire customers and there's a lot of work that can be done even before you actually build your product to understand what what are the channels of distribution what's your cost of customer acquisition all of those things can be really understood well before your product is launched so those are three main areas that I you know tell people to focus on well sharish thank you very much for joining us this has been great and uh, we appreciate you taking the time Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it and look forward to seeing the podcast. Sharish Nadkarni is the author of From Startup to Exit, An Insider's Guide to Launching and Scaling Your Tech Business. We will link to the book and to his work from the show notes on this episode. We're not done yet. Coming up next, it's our listener feedback section. We'll be right back on GeekWire. 
This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook, and we are joined now by Kurt Milton, our editor and producer of the GeekWire podcast. Great to have you here, Kurt. Thank you very much. Great to be back. Well, we wanted to have you back on because we had a really interesting piece of feedback from a listener on the episode that you and I recorded recently, Kurt, about the different audio tips and tricks and behind-the-scenes equipment that we use And John actually is embodying one of those right now. He's using the Rode NT-USB mini mic that is my favorite. I feel like if I ever endorse a mic, it'll be the one that that John's on. Because you sound so great, John. Wow. I thought I was doing something wrong. No. no. Embodying something about the podcast. I thought it was just, you know, I thought it was going to be something negative. So this is very positive to hear. Don't typecast me. You sound wonderful. Thank you. You're good, John. You sound great. (laughs) All right. So the feedback comes about a different mic and from Steve Case. No, not the AOL founder. His day job is with Xerox. He's a specialty imaging technology manager uh, and a longtime listener to the GeekWire podcast. And Steve does his own tech blogging and podcasting as well. So he had a specific piece of feedback on my diss of the Blue Yeti mic, because every time (laughs) I've had somebody on with a Blue Yeti mic, you know, those are the ones, they're really distinctive. They look like a little ball on top of of the mic stand. Um, They're kind of retro. They look cool and old. Yeah. But every time I've had somebody on, it just sounded like crap. And I've, I've just sort of dismissed the mic as a result. Steve's assertion is essentially that this is not a problem with the technology. It's a problem with the users. Here's a quick excerpt from his message that he sent us. The Yeti is perfect for podcasting because of its three condenser capsules and four modes. So it's good for one person in cardioid mode or interviewing someone in person in bi-directional mode. But the key point, he says, is that many people who use these for podcasts, YouTube, etc., don't understand the modes or even which side to talk to. This is a side address mic, but he sees people talking into the end of it or even into the backside when using cardioid mode. Then there are the folks that get way too close to the mic without a pop guard and set the gain to full. The built-in gain control is a great feature, but with the power to change gain at the microphone comes the responsibility to set it appropriately. I read all that just to bask in the fact that we've got a listener who is so into this and so geeky. For anybody who really cares about all the details, I will copy that into the show notes this week so you can see exactly what Steve had to say. We've got a good reaction, and you can tell that people really do struggle with these mics and getting them right. And they apparently don't read the instructions that come with the microphone to know how to use it properly. So, But nice to know we have a listener who's just as geeky and nuts as we are. So that was cool. It was interesting. Absolutely. I think it might actually even be more geeky than us. Yeah, I think so. Hard to believe. Kurt, thanks for joining us again. We'll have to have you back on if we get any more listener feedback or have any more audio technicalities to discuss. Pleased to come in and visit with you guys. 
Thanks for listening to GeekWire, everyone. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our stories. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. Thanks for listening to GeekWire.